Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. At this time, without further ado, Pastor Cliff Whitehead will be coming up and sharing a word with us. They were asking before about people that could help with the computers and stuff. I'm just graduating from the, um, the remember the things we used in school with the projector? You put the uh, piece of paper on it and it screens up. I'm just moving beyond that right now. <laughs> but anyway, upon my request... Uh, Vinny's being locked downstairs, upon my request. So, but uh, yeah, Vinny is actually he's a very good brother, but um, you know he's a funny guy, right? You know, I asked Pastor Joe if he would um, allow me just to spend a couple minutes before we get into the Word of God this morning. Some of you are aware of it. Back in 2005, I started a ministry. Um, called the Good Fight of Faith Ministry. And it's about spiritual warfare. And I hold it down in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, over three days and two nights. And uh, at the end of September, we're going on another trip down there. And the whole idea is we learn about the battle and the facts about the battle itself. And over the years, I've been able to collect quotes from believers on both sides. And I get to share them at the place where they were at on the battlefield. And then at night, we do teaching about spiritual warfare using the battlefield as an object lesson. So I have uh, pamphlets out there in the lobby. If after the service you have any questions, I'll be more than happy to answer them. But I'm starting a new one this year, too. It's it's the first time. It's called The Gospel and the Gettysburg Address. And it's going to be November 3rd and 4th, two days and one night in Gettysburg. And what this focuses on is when Lincoln came to Gettysburg, to give his Gettysburg Address in November. The battle had been fought in July. He came in November. And so when we're there, we look at the train station he came in, uh, where he stayed overnight. We follow his footsteps up to the cemetery where he gave the Gettysburg Address. But the teachings are, on on the Friday night, the teachings are the Bible's influence on uh, Lincoln as a man and as president. And then the teaching on Saturday morning is about the gospel's influence on the Gettysburg Address. So um, that's new this year, and there's a pamphlet out there for out there as well. But m- many of you might know that he very much revered the Bible and knew much scripture. And one of my favorite uh, verse uh, quotes of his was: During the war, a lady from the North asked him a question. He said, "President Lincoln, you believe that God is on our side, right?" And he said, man, my concern is not that God be on our side, but that we be on God's side because God is always right. What a quote, huh? And with that in mind, let's get into his word, right? Read the word of the one who is always right. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for bringing us together this Sunday morning to worship you to fellowship with one another, to look into Your Word. And Lord, we always want Your Word to be our teacher. And we ask that Your Spirit would open up Your Word to us. And we together might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, with such a blessing as the family of God just coming here, I met some new people already before the service, and there's just a connection, Lord. It's just a connection, even though you've never met anybody, Lord, than before, Lord, because of your spirit. And we thank you for the family of God. I thank you for this opportunity to share your word here, Lord. We ask that you would be magnified and that you would be glorified. And that we as individuals and the church here at Crossfields and Fellowship Chapel in Point Pleasant, that, Lord, we would line ourselves up with you and your word because you are truly always right. And we pray this all in that name that's above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Okay, we're going to be in two places. We're going to start off this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, and spend most of our time in Isaiah chapter 6. So uh, the title of today's message is Answering the Call to Be Holy. Answering the Call to Be Holy. The Lord calls for Christians and therefore the church to be holy. So as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Peter writes, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. So this is the call to the church and to individuals of the church to be holy, as God is holy. And that was the call to the nation of Israel. In fact, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament there about that call to be holy. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, God says to Moses to speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so called to the individual people of the nation of Israel, the nation itself to be holy. So we see in that instance the call to Israel and to the church is the same call to be holy. We see that in both. Now isn't it crazy nowadays you have people out there um, calling themselves pastors and preachers and saying we don't need the Old Testament anymore. Right? And the Old Testament is obviously the Word of God. And obviously for me, it, and for most of us, illustrates New Testament truths. New Testament truths. But I want to start off by defining the word holiness. What does that word mean? But I want to start by looking at what it doesn't mean and pointing out some misconceptions concerning it. Let me see here. I'm not getting a um, movement on that, guys. Let me see. There we go. All right. And you see up there on the screen how to be a legalist. And legalists are those who have the concept of holiness wrong. Okay? And you can read some of the things up there how to be a legalist. We don't have to go through all of them, but it gives you an idea. And to sum that all up, is holiness is not achieved by following a list of legalistic rules and engaging in expected church behavior to impress others with one's godliness. It's not something about a set of rules that we're following, and we're trying to impress others, and we're doing it in our own efforts. That's not holiness. This is the legalist's idea of holiness. But we want to define what it means. You see, look at that first point under how to be a legalist. Obey God's commands without your heart's or without your heart or understanding of it. Add new rules outside the Bible. Argue over matters of opinion. Find your own opinion outside the commands of God on others. Boast about how good you are and how bad others are. Now that's a key one. You see, notice where the comparison is made from one person to another. But that's not how we discern holiness. Holiness is discerned by our comparison with the holiness of God, not other people. So holiness, the word, the Hebrew word for holy means holy or a saint or set apart. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for holy means saints or set apart. And really, I think the clearest definition is the whole idea of being set apart. Set apart. That's what holiness is. To be set apart. And so we have a good working definition. To be set apart. That's what the word holy means. But we want to look at it in the context of this verse, that these verses that Peter wrote, and how we'll look at it in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 9. Let's look at this again in 1 Peter. But he who called you is holy you also be holy in your context because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So the idea is that holiness is truly defined by God. God is totally set apart, different 
than all His creation. Perfection. And set apart. And we're called to become more and more like God. And reflect His character to others. So we're to be set apart from the world. We're to be set apart from the world. So that we can create a contrast with the world. You see, the more we become like God, the more hope we answer that call to holiness, the more we take on Christ-like character, it contrasts with the world. And the reason that God called the nation of Israel to be holy, and He caused the church to be holy, is He has called the church now, He had called Israel before, to be a vessel through which the world would be drawn in attention to Him. So Israel would be a unique nation that the world would say they're different and it would get them to consider who their God is, which He is the only true God, right? And so we're to create a contrast by answering the call to be holiness, to be holy, so that people will look towards God. We're not to become like the world. D.L. Moody said this, A holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. I like that. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. And we're to shine for the Lord. Reflect His light to the world. To draw the attention of the world Towards God. So we're going to look at an event in the life of Isaiah the prophet which instructs us in a very illustrative way that which is needed to answer God's call to holiness. And so I'm going to put up on the screen here the five points we'll look at. What is needed to answer the call of the Lord to holiness. Removal. Revelation. Recognition, refining, and readiness. So let's flip over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And it says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And the train of the robe filled the temple. Now Isaiah's vision of God takes place in the year that King Uzziah dies. at 739 B.C. Now King Uzziah, also known as Azariah in Scripture, reigned for 52 years. Imagine that. Same leader of one country for 52 years. Imagine if we had presidents that were in office for 52 years. <laughs> That's a tough thought now, isn't it? For 52 years, he ruled the nation. And for most of those years, he was very successful and influential. And he was considered one of the godly kings of the southern kingdom, Judah. Under his reign, there was peace and prosperity. He built up the city of Jerusalem. He built up a strong army. He invented things that helped the nation. He just had a very influential reign. But Uzziah didn't finish strong as a godly king. He stumbled towards the end of his reign. And it told us, it tells us in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 26, verse 14, he, was, he, meaning Uzziah, was marvelously helped until he became strong. And the idea was that he was marvelously helped as long as when he was dependent on the Lord, when he was holy, set apart to the Lord. But when he became strong, the idea he started to move in his own strength. Then he stumbled. He wasn't set apart anymore. And he was struck with leprosy and he would die a leper. 
He took on to himself the role that only a priest should take on in the temple. And so he would be a leper until the day he died. Now, Isaiah the prophet, he was called by God to preach to a nation that was drifting away from the Lord, who was a nation that was no longer holy unto the Lord. Isaiah came along and he was preaching that God would judge them unless they would turn back. He was to preach a message of coming judgment. Now, chapter 6 is not in chronological order with the first five chapters. The first five chapters talk about the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. Chapter 6 goes back in time to just as he's being called to be that prophet to bring the judgment. So that's an important context for us to have. So when we read chapter 6, the Lord's calling him into the ministry that begins to be recorded in chapter 1 through 5. And so, it's in that year that this long reign from a human perspective of 52 years comes to an end. And many scholars, historians of the Bible, believe that King, I mean, Isaiah was very much influenced by King Uzziah. And so it's in the year that he dies, that his reign ends, that Isaiah gets this vision of the throne room in heaven. Of the throne room in heaven. And he gets a vision of that Moses would have had back on Mount Sinai when he was told to build the tabernacle after what he sees, what he saw up on top of that mountain with the Lord. So he's seeing, he will see into the heavenly temple and you see that it says here that the, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the idea was that God's presence was all through the temple. So back in those days when the king walked into a throne, walked into a palace to his throne, and you had a seat in the upper balcony and you looked down, you would know when the king came in because his robe would be very long. So the presence of the king would be there. So God is saying, God, the, I mean, Isaiah is saying the Lord's presence was overwhelming, filled the heavenly temple. So he's getting this vision. Now, in John chapter 12, John lets us know that who Isaiah is seeing is the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenly temple. The pre-incarnate Christ is the view he is getting there. Now, there's a very important principle that's alluded to here. And this is it. It's alluded to by the fact that Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple when Uzziah, I mean, King Uzziah has died. A very influential man in his life has died. And now he is seeing a vision of the Lord. And the principle that that's pointing out to you and I and that should grab our attention is that sometimes people or things in our life need to be removed or diminished in importance before we can see the Lord more clearly. When, there are, when we allow things into our life that we depend on more than God, that we hold in importance more than God, maybe we would never say that, but in practical practicality, we live that, that there's something more important to us something more influential, and it, that keeps us from getting to know the Lord better. It keeps us from getting to, us to see Him more clearly. And so the removal or diminishing importance of people or things who are on the throne of our life must occur before we can begin to answer the call to be holy before we can do that. See, in the year King Uzziah dies, that Isaiah gets his vision. Now, we know one of the problems with the nations around Israel was idolatry. 
Right? And when Israel started to go wrong, it's because they embraced the idols of the other nations. And those idols represent things. Like there was Mammon, the god of money or wealth. And there was various gods. And what they were really doing is worshipping their desires because as they believed that they worshipped mammon, they would be wealthy. And so you had all these gods that represented different things in life. Sex or influence or power. Moloch represented power. And so what they were really doing was worshipping those things that they desired most. And when Israel started to do the same thing, they stopped answering the call to be holy because when they worshipped the very same things that the world did, they looked more like the world than God. And so sometimes those idols have to be removed from one's life or diminished in importance before they can see the Lord more clearly. What are some idols? Just to name a few that hinder seeing God more clearly and growing in Him. You see, we may not worship statues, but we may be worshiping another person. A career. Our career. Money. Fame. Fortune. Entertainment. Alcohol. Substance. Sports, we can worship sports, right? Now, some things have to be removed. Others may just have to be diminished in importance. But what is ever primarily controlling our life and giving us direction in life and is our greatest desire, if it's something other than God, it's an idol. And that will hinder us from knowing the Lord more intimately and answering that call to be holy. You see, it's a deeper understanding, hard understanding of the Lord that is key to the process of growing in holiness or answering that call. Now, God reveals Himself primarily to you and I through His Word. And you see, if we have something in our life that is more important to us than the Lord, we don't see the Lord as clearly in His Word. Jesus is the Word of God to become flesh, to dwell among us. And so, when we see God with our heart understanding, we are seeing Him in His holiness. And God reveals Himself through His Word. Reveals Himself through His Word. And so when we repent of those things in our life that we've made more important than God, when those things die or are removed, we can get a clearer vision of God, a deeper, more intimate understanding of God. And that changes our life. That changes our life. And so the first word there is removal. In other words, to answer the call to holiness, sometimes we have to remove things. There's things that need to be removed. We need to repent of certain things in our life. Now, think about that. God is holy. Completely holy. Now, when we get saved, right? When we get saved, we begin a growing process. We want to become more like Christ. Now, Christ is completely holy. Set apart. I'm always going to have to be answering the call to be holy. Down here on earth, I can never say, I've arrived. Right? There's always some things that I need to make less important in my life or to repent of so that I can move closer to God. Always. And I know many of you who have been believers for years, you remember when you were saved, there were those things that you gave up right away. But then as you grow as a Christian, you start to realize there's things on the motivational level, on the attitude level, right, that need to be removed. And sometimes you haven't realized it, and then all of a sudden the Lord convicts you of it. 
It's like peeling an onion, getting the layers and layers and layers and layers. And so Isaiah was a pretty, pretty godly guy, but there's some things that need to be removed in his life. Well, the second point is revelation. The second point is revelation. You see, after removal, we'll get deeper revelation. So let's look at this now, verse 2. Above it all stood seraphim. That's an order of angels around the throne of God. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So you have these seraphim. The word simply means burning. That's what the word means. These are an order of angels. They stand above the Lord and they have six wings. And the idea with two covering the face symbolizes humility and worshipful attitude. And then two covering the feet indicates humility as well in God's presence. And then with two, he flew, indicating obedient service to the Lord. So there you have worshipful angels, humble, ready to serve the Lord around his throne. That's what Isaiah is seeing as he looks. Verse 3. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Oh, there's a lot there. Holy, holy, holy. They're calling out to one another in worship. And there's that word, holy, holy, holy. Set apart, set apart, set apart is the Lord of hosts. Three times. Holy is mentioned. That means ultimate holiness. Ultimate holiness. And I came across this statistic here about the Bible. Holiness is probably the most prominent attribute of God that is mentioned in Scripture. It's mentioned over 600 times. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Isaiah would write that in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Then it says, for the whole, the angels say, for the whole earth is full of his glory. And that Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And it means the substance of God, or his reputation, or his honor, or his characteristics. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole universe is full of his glory as well. You see, where the idol worshippers fell short, they would worship the moon and the sun. The moon and the sun reflect God's glory. He's the creator of them. So we worship the creator that has created the sun and the moon, but the sun and the moon reflect some of his attributes. Light, power. And so the whole earth is full of his glory. Psalm 72, verse 18 and 19. The psalmist writes, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be His glorious name forever. Blessed be His glorious name forever. And so these angels are continually focused on God. And so they're continually worshiping. They're they're continually ready to serve Him. Ready to obey Him. Ready to submit to Him with that focus on the Lord. And then we go to verse 4. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And the house was filled with smoke. And this is reflecting the awesome and powerful presence of the Lord. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, do you remember from Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. That's what you're seeing here in heaven. What was happening on Mount Sinai? Same thing. The awesome, powerful presence of God. Now we read about this, but just try to imagine. What is Isaiah seeing? It's got to be overwhelming. He's looking at this. He's seeing God in His holiness and in His glory and the power of His presence 
and these angels around the throne. You see, when we have more important things than that we hold more important than God, when those are removed from our life or diminished, and we more earnestly seek the Lord, the Lord will reveal Himself in ways He hadn't before to us through His Word and in the circumstances of life. Did you ever have that experience? You're reading the Word of God and you're going through a difficult circumstance in your life and you've read that verse many, many times and this particular time, it speaks right to what you're going through, right? It either gives you guidance or conviction or encouragement and God has revealed Himself to you and that's like a wow moment, isn't it? And even though you believe the Word of God is real, all, all of a sudden it's gone to a deeper level of real. God's speaking right to me right now. That's, that's life-changing. When we see the Lord in His Word and acting in the circumstances of our life, we grow in intimacy with the Lord. And we're changed. We're changed. It's the transformation process. So, we see again, the first word is removal. The second word, removal, leads to revelation. And now, the third word we're going to look at is recognition. Recognition. So we've seen God, and now Isaiah will recognize something. He'll recognize something. Verse 5. So I said, woe is everybody else. No, he didn't say that, did he? He saw God in His holiness, and he looked at himself and said, Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is a judgment term. In fact, when you read the first four chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah will be going around the nation of Israel saying, Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. But to be an effective servant of the Lord, he had to say, Woe is me first. He sees God's holiness and he says, Woe is me. I came across a a verse, uh, quote by Billy Graham yesterday that I think is appropriate for our study here. And Billy Graham says, only when we understand the holiness of God will we understand the depth of our sin. And that's what Isaiah is experiencing. The depth of his sin. A depth that he had never realized before. Remember we talk, we can be sinful and not know. We can be sinful at the motivational level, at the attitude level, way down deep within, and God's wanting to get down there and cleanse us, free us. So he says, woe is me. And then he says, for I am undone. He's broken. He's broken. There's other guys in the Bible who experience the same thing. Remember Job at the end of his trial when God comes to him and speaks to him and reveals things to him? He said to the Lord, he said, I had, I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you and I repent in dust and ashes. And this was the, this was the man that God had said to Satan at the beginning of the book of Job as it's recorded, look at my servant Job, a blameless man. Didn't mean he was sinless, but he was, he was a godly man. But there was still stuff that he needed to repent of to answer the call to holiness. How about Peter? When Peter's fishing with Jesus in the boat with the other disciples, and Jesus commands, you know, he, he, there's a miracle, they catch all this fish. All these fish, the boat's almost about to sink. And Peter sees the power of the Lord and he says, depart from me, I'm an evil man. 
Same response, same idea here. When Paul sees Jesus in his glory in heaven, Paul walked with Jesus when Jesus was walking the earth daily. But when he saw Jesus in his glory, it says he felt like a dead man at his feet. Dead man at his feet. Paul on the road to Damascus, right? This religious man who thought he was all right with God sees Jesus Christ knocked off his knocked to his feet, uh, knocked to the ground, and he recognizes his sinfulness. And then Isaiah says this: He says, "Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people." Of unclean lips. So now he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And what that's indicating, an unclean heart. Right? Jesus would say in Matthew, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 12, that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And what he's saying is, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of a sinful heart. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And now what's so important here is he is he is putting himself in the same category as the people that he's going to go minister to and preach to. He's saying, I'm sinful just like they are. And what Isaiah is realizing is that he's closer to the worst sinner in Israel than he is to God. Than he is to God. And then he says, for my eyes, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And all of that, where he pronounces judgment on himself, he humbles himself, and I'm saying I'm more like the people than I am like you, God, it all comes from seeing God more clearly. From seeing God more clearly. And so, seeing God more clearly and in a bigger way brings brokenness, it brings repentance, it brings humility. Now, we're familiar, I'll read this, you can turn there if you want, but I'll I'll read it, it's from Luke chapter 18. We see the opposite effect with a Pharisee in a parable that Jesus tells us. It begins in verse 9. It says, and, also, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the, to the temple to pray, Jesus said. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. There's the legalist, right? And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, that Pharisee wasn't seeing God clearly. Because he was looking at the other man and saying, I'm glad I'm not like him. He's comparing himself with the other man, and he's boasting of all that he's done. No conviction, no humility, no brokenness. And that's the opposite of what we see happening with Isaiah here. You see, drawing closer to God will bring us the brokenness and repentance that brings spiritual growth. Okay, so we've looked at three words. Okay, Removal, revelation, recognition, and now refining. Now we're going to look at refining. And before I do that, I just want to share with you a personal testimony uh, of you know, one of the reasons I wanted to preach this this morning is I think we all have we've been Christians a while. We all have had passages of scripture that were turning points in our faith. They, 
that God used them in a great way. And he used this passage description of Isaiah in a, in a way in my life. And so, just to share with you, for a, a number of years I competed uh, in the distance running for a number of years. Distance running was very important to me. I was competitive at it. And I was able to reach a certain level where um, I, I ran an Olympic trials qualifying time uh, back in 1980. And what it, what, the way you qualify for the Olympic trials and the marathon is you have to run a certified marathon within a year under two hours and 20 minutes. And then you get invited to the Olympic trials race. And then in that race, the top three make the Olympic team. Well, I ran the 219, but it was six months past the deadline. And this was in 1980. So I ran the 219, but it was six months too late. So I figured, well, gee, in 1984, I'd have a really good shot at it, you know. So I continued to keep on training and training and training. And, you know, running, I, I ate, slept, and drank running. Vinny would tell you the story. He knows how much I did that. And, and I was, you know, I was a believer at the time, and I, was, I started to go to a church, and I started to teach in this uh, church up in Atlantic Highlands in the church school. They had a Christian school. And the pastor there, as I got to know him better and he got to know me better, he said, I, th I believe you have a call to the ministry, he said. And I said, oh, no, no, the Lord wants me to use my running ability to glorify him, and that's what I'm going to do. Now, in my life, I always liked the things that I did. In other words, I went to school to be a teacher, and I taught, and I coached, and I competed. And I liked all those things. I enjoyed all those things. But I had like a restlessness, like a thought that I'm supposed to be doing something else. I didn't know what it was. Well, this pastor was very gracious up there in Atlantic Highlands, and he said, I think the Lord will show you one time. I think he'll show you. Well, I was someone that could train and train and train and never get hurt, never get injured. Guess what started to happen? I started to get injured. And I never ran the 219 again. I ran like a 222, a 221. 1984 came and went. And then I said, I'm going to try again. <laughs> and I was hanging on. So I never got back to that level again, but I'm still not get understanding exactly what it is the Lord wants me to do. Well, I get married in 1988. And then two years after we're married, uh, Shortly, after, shortly under two years after we married, when my wife was pregnant with our first son, I came down with this in, infection. And it was a, a type of infection where they didn't know, they were trying to find the source of it. In other words, I, I wasn't feeling well for months, so they checked me for you know, different things like um, different type, you know, tick bite, those type of things, and viruses and this and that. But basically the symptoms were, as I would wake up two or three times in the middle of the night just totally soaked, my, my t-shirt totally soaked, and I was, during the day, it's, the fever seemed to come down, but then it would go up again. This went on for like two or three months. And then one time I called my doctor and I said, you know, I happened to take my pulse rate one morning and I said, it was up to around, um, it was up around 81, and I called my doctor and I said, my pulse rate's 81, and he said, well, it's not too elevated, you know, for being sick. But at the time, because I was running so much, my resting heart rate was like 42. So I said that to him. He said, I'll see you at the hospital. Then they did a blood culture, and they found strep growing in my blood. So I went up to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. They shipped me up there. They had me up there for a whole month on intravenous antibiotics. And while I was up there, I at that time had kind of drifted away from the Word, and I, I asked Mary Beth, my wife, when she came up to visit me to bring my Bible, and I started to focus back in on the Lord. Well, it was finally resolved, the infection was finally resolved, and the Lord impressed upon my heart, he said, you know, impressed upon me, Cliff, you know, that infection that you couldn't even see could have wiped you out. You need to be dependent on me not your fitness level, not anything else. Well, during the course of all that, they discovered that I had a, a birth defect. I, had, um, I was born with two, two flaps on my aortic valve. There's usually three. And so the doctor, the cardiologist that helped me with the infection, he started to say, you know, we need to track this each year. You need to go for an echo. He goes, because we're going to need to re 
replace that valve when your heart starts to strain. Okay. So I felt fine. He said, you can keep running. It's not you know, a clogged artery or anything. You can keep running, but when there's going to be time, it needs to be have to open heart surgery. So about five or six years later, from the test, he said, when the test came back, he said, you need to have the valve replaced in six months. Okay. And I was feeling fine. And he's telling me I have to have to get my chest cut open and the valve replaced. And I understood it. I understood the, why I needed it. But it, emotionally, it was hard to embrace the fact that I could make a decision one morning to go out and run or go have my chest cut open. And so I scheduled the surgery. The night before the first scheduler, the first surgery, I back out. I cancel it. Second surgery is set up. The morning of, I back out of that one. Now the doctor says the six-month window is closing. You've got to get this done. So now it's scheduled for the third time. And the night before the surgery, I'm just pouring my heart out to the Lord and impressed upon my mind is Psalm 4. And I go to Psalm 4 and I read it, and Psalm 4, verse 4 says, Tremble and sin not. Meditate, on your, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. And I believe, I just, it was one of those passages where I felt the Lord was really speaking to me. Personally. And I started to do that. I just started to meditate on the Lord. Casting my anxieties upon Him. I slept well that night. I woke up, I had a little anxiety, but the anxiety had been up here. And I went through the surgery. And when I woke up in the recovery room, I saw I, I had an oxygen mask on, and there were nurses walking around the room. And I, had, I heard, as clear as the worship this morning, I heard the worship, this is the day that the Lord has made. You shall rejoice and be glad in it. And I was like, oh, that's neat. But then I started to go, who's singing it? Who's singing it? They had a radio on in the, in the recovery room, but it had you know, rock and roll music on it. But I had heard, this is the day that the Lord has made. You shall rejoice and be glad in it. But I had an oxygen mask in my mouth. I couldn't ask anyone, was there anyone else singing? You know, this. Well, the shift had changed by the time they took my mask off. I went back to my, they took me back to my room the next day. And then the physical therapist came in the following day and he sees the Bible on my nightstand, and he says, oh, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. He goes, I am too. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. He wasn't in the recovery room. And this so impacted me. It so impacted me. And I started to realize what Isaiah was realizing, like, woe is me, I'm undone. You know, that the Lord's really speaking to me. And he was impressing upon me that, you know, you've made your sports career too important. Too important. Well, make a long story short, you know, I, I went home, I started to devote myself more to the Word, and then I, started, I went back, I joined another church down in Wall Township, I started to serve there, and a few months down the road, that pastor was a different from another pastor, said, I think you have a call to the ministry. And now, it's, now it was like confirmed in my heart. And I got into the ministry back in 1996 as an associate pastor. And I never, ever again had the feeling that I was supposed to be doing something else. But the Lord had to break me. He had to break me. And He broke me by making Himself more real to me. You know? That personal touch. <laughs> The great surgeon. And so, once we know the Lord and we're saved, He refines us. Look at verse 6 and 7. It says here, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sins are purged. So now he sees an angel taking a coal 
And this is the coal from the brazen altar. If you remember the tabernacle, that was the altar of sacrifice. Well, remember, Moses made the tabernacle based on things he saw in heaven. So here's his angel taking this hot coal, and he's saying that your sins are forgiven. And then he touches Isaiah's lips with this coal. And what you're seeing here is the forgiveness of God for Isaiah's sins, but the touching of the coal to his lips is now purification. It's now refining. It's sanctification. He's growing in the Lord. The Lord is purging him and growing him. And once we're saved, we begin the sanctification process. The Lord begins to work on us to make us more like Him. And we are to yield to that. We're to surrender to that. And what Isaiah is being done here to Isaiah is he's being purified. And you see, when we're seeking the Lord with the heart that David had, Psalm 51, verse 10, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, and we're yielding to God, He will sanctify us. He will draw us closer to Himself. 1 John 1, 9, right? What a great verse. If I confess my sin to Him, He's faithful and righteous to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. We have a new beginning. That particular verse is for a believer. It's for us when we sin after we're saved. He forgives us of the sins. He cleanses us of the sins. He gives us a new beginning. It's part of the sanctification process. You see, that this process is how we answer the call to be holy. How many of you are familiar with the, the song, Refiner's Fire? Right? Think, of the, think of the hot coal touching Isaiah's lips. Let me just read the words of that song. Purify my heart, let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart, let me be as gold, pure gold. Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy. Set apart for you, Lord, I choose to be holy. Set apart for you, my Master, ready to do your will. Purify my heart, cleanse me from within, and make me holy. Those are some of the words of that song. Right? Purify, to be set apart. Okay, we're on our final point. We have removal, revelation, recognition, refining, and readiness. Readiness. Okay, here we are, verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And you see an allusion there to the Trinity, don't we? Yeah, us. So God knows who He's intending to send, but He asks the question so that Isaiah hears it. Who is going to go? Who am I going to send? You see, Isaiah is now ready to serve the Lord's purpose. Not his own. And he answers God's call. Why is he ready? Well, he's ready because he's broken of himself. You see, when we get to the end of ourselves, we get to the beginning of God. He's broken, he's humbled, he's refined, he's purified, he's in the transformation process. And the Lord, of course, knew he was ready. So it was a rhetorical question. Isaiah would write many years later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, from his own personal experience, he said, but on this one I will look, meaning the, the one the Lord will look on, on him who is poor or humble and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who the Lord's looking for. And so, it tells us here in verse 9, or at the end of verse 8, it says, Then I said, Here I am, send me. I say, it says, Here I am, send me. He's ready to go. And it says, and then God said, and he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Isaiah would go out and preach the word of the Lord. And he would preach and he would preach and he would preach. And if you, when you read the rest of the chapter, you come to the understanding that only a tenth of the people would listen. Only a tenth of the people would listen. But Isaiah understood that results weren't his, results were God's. His goal, his call was to be faithful. Here I am, send me, Lord. He was ready. And like I just thought of my own experience, and I'm sure you guys as well. You know, I knew at that time, when the second pastor said you had a call to ministry, I knew I was ready. The first time I wasn't. I had to go through brokenness. I had to go through, you know, God sending me through the trials. Uh, and when we're broken, you know, when we're weak, then we're strong. That's what Paul wrote about. You see, when we're weak in ourselves and we're dependent on the Lord, then we're strong. Then we're ready to serve Him. And so, the Lord wants to bring us to readiness to serve Him faithfully. To borrow from A.W. Tozer, to use one greatly, God must break one deeply. To use one greatly, God must break one deeply. We see it throughout Scripture. Didn't He have to break Moses? Didn't He have to break David? Didn't He have to break Isaiah? Didn't He have to break Peter? Didn't He have to break Paul? You see, answering the call to holiness goes hand in hand with a call to serve. Growth in holiness produces effectiveness in service. And we can't do it by our human effort. There's only God's ways to holiness. Removal, revelation, recognition, refining, and readiness. And I want to close with this. You know, you guys are blessed with a very godly church. You really are. Godly pastors. And one of their heartbeats is discipleship. You know, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. And discipleship is not just evangelizing. Evangelization brings people to Christ. Discipleship is growing people in Christ. It's really about equipping people to answer the call to be holy. To answer the call to be ready to serve. If you just recently trusted Christ as your Savior, really consider putting your heart and mind into a discipleship program here. That's how God will reveal more and more of Himself to you and reveal what's in your heart and readies you for service. And so I want to encourage you in that. And I'm going to close with this, and uh, I guess we'll close in worship, but I just want to give anyone here who's never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior an opportunity to do so. And so if we all would just bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're watching in on live stream, we're glad you're with us this morning. And if there's anyone who's never, who has never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, and one of the ways you can know whether you have or not is to answer this question. If you were to die tonight, do you know that you would be with the Lord? If you can't answer yes to that question, you want to make that decision for Christ and, and take Him at His word. And so I'm going to say a prayer, and if, if you want to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can say these words, and most importantly, they, must, they need to come from the heart. So let's, let's pray. If anyone, You can pray to yourself to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. And my sin separates me from you. I know that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and to rise three days later from the dead to give me eternal life. I confess my sin to you. I repent. I turn from them. I ask you to save me. And based on your work on the cross, your faithfulness to your word, I thank you that I'm saved. 
Now, if you pray that prayer, you know, the Lord would have us confess him before man. Share it with somebody here at the church. Share it with myself, one of the pastors. We'd love to hear from you. If you're watching it on live stream, give the church a call. Say that you prayed that prayer. And then the most important thing then is to get into discipleship. Grow in the word of the Lord. Deepen your intimacy with him. Well, thank you for listening, and God bless you all. And let's worship the Lord. Every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10:30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.